And uh, we want to look at verses 15 through 22, obligations to God and government. Probably picked up on that in children's moment, didn't you? I mean, you're very, very perceptive. Uh, obligations to God and government, Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Lord, we thank you for your word now. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. Make the appropriate applications uh, to our lives that would be uh, to the glory of yourself. So, Lord, we commit our study to you, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you note on the overhead, uh, we are in Matthew, and the theme is Christ the King, and we have worked our way down to that section in chapters 21 through 23, the formal rejection of the king. The context here is the last week of Christ's earthly ministry, and it was a busy one. After Christ cleansed the temple on Monday, the religious leaders were then very zealous. They were already plotting, but they were then in, in overdrive began to plot uh, how they're going to overthrow Jesus. And uh, they began challenging his authority, asking him, on what basis, uh, by what authority are you doing these things, such as cleansing the temple? Well, Jesus followed up with three parables that really served as an indictment against these religious leaders. In the second parable, Christ challenged them by quoting from Psalm 118, as found in Matthew 21, 42. And it says there, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, which was a tremendous insult to these religious leaders, these studied religious leaders, have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus then said the kingdom would be taken from them, and on whomever the stone falls... Jesus himself being the stone, it will grind them to powder. And then the text says, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard these parables, quote, they perceived that he was speaking of them. And this is one thing they were right about. Jesus then followed up with one more parable, emphasizing their rejection of the invitation to the marriage of the Son emphasizing the importance of responding positively to the personal invitation, and that those rejecting will be cast out into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, these parables of judgment targeting the religious leaders in Israel form the background to the remainder of what we find in chapter 22. The religious leaders then, in earnest, began plotting how they could destroy Jesus. And in doing so, they unwittingly went about fulfilling the very prophecies in the parables that Jesus had just presented. He had showed how the wicked leaders wrongfully reject the chief cornerstone. He had portrayed how they violently reject the gracious invitation extended to them. Now their actions become a fulfillment of what Jesus had just prophesied in these parables. Now, on three occasions, they send delegations in an effort to discredit Jesus, all which fail miserably. Now, in the chronological development of the Passion Week leading to the crucifixion, these events happened on Tuesday. So just by way of review, Sunday we have the triumphal entry. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, and he inspects the temple activities. On Monday, he curses the fig tree, and then he cleanses or clears the temple. Now we're on Tuesday. 
And Jesus explains the withered fig tree. And then we have these temple controversies that we find here in chapter 22. So in terms of activity, in Matthew 22 and 23, we're still on Tuesday of Passion Week. And the center of activity is the temple. Now, in terms of what is happening, the scrutiny, the scrutiny that Jesus is undergoing here, albeit with a very critical spirit, what is being applied to Jesus here really was a part of God's sovereign master plan, as of course everything is. But as the Lamb of God, who was to die for the sins of the world, he was to undergo a time of testing for four days before the sacrifice of Passover. And we see this in Exodus chapter 12. <clears throat> Speak to the congregation of Israel, say, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You, shall, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day. So you take it on the tenth, and you keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So, in terms of typology, Jesus is fulfilling this. These last four days were days of inspection to make sure there was no blemish in the sacrificial lamb. If any blemish whatsoever was found, the lamb would not be a worthy sacrifice. But Jesus passed every test, they gave him. He didn't falter at all. Even his enemies could find no fault in him. Now, these challenges brought by these religious leaders really amounted to an intense time of inspection. Last four days before the cross, which is in keeping with the typology required for the sacrificial lamb as seen in Exodus 12. Now, the parallel passages to what we're studying in Matthew 22, 15 through 22 are found in Mark 12, 13 through 17, and Luke 20, 20 through 26. Let's pick it up, Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. Now recall that the Pharisees had perceived that Jesus spoke the preceding parables against them. And so now they are actively plotting Christ's demise. And also recall that while they wanted to lay hands on Jesus, they did not do so because they feared the multitudes who took Jesus to be a prophet. So the goal here was to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people by trying to trap him in his words. To entangle means to trap or to ensnare as a hunter would set a snare for an animal, hoping it would step into it and be caught. So they were seeking, really, to set a trap for Jesus. And we know this, uh, again, the, the parallel passage here in Luke 20, verse 20 says, so, so they watched him, they're watching, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the government. They want to get him in some kind of a, a legal trouble with the government. So they were definitely out to try and get Jesus. They want him to fall in a bad way, so bad that it will put him in trouble with Rome. Verse 16. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God in truth, 
nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Notice that the Pharisees did not go themselves. Did you catch that? They sent their disciples. So they didn't go themselves, evidently because they would have been immediately recognized. So rather, they sent their disciples with the Herodians. So in plotting here, new faces were needed along with new deceptive tactics. Now the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, applies here. The Pharisees, you see, and the Herodians were natural enemies. But here they made common cause because they were united in their hatred for Jesus and shared the common goal of seeking his demise. As someone else has said, a common enemy makes strange bedfellows. And indeed it does. And it does here. You see, the Pharisees were the religious conservatives. And they hated the yoke of Rome, believing that as the chosen people, they should live free in their land of promise. The Herodians were more like a political party that consisted of Jews who had made peace with the Herodian dynasty and used this position for political favors and position. Now, in that position, they were really advocates for Rome, of which the Herodian dynasty was a major player. The Herodian family traced its roots back to Herod the Great, and they were not Jewish in terms of background, but rather the descendants of the, of the Edomites, uh, the ancient enemies of God's people, Israel. And this family, Herod's family, which came to have so much political power in the, in the, in the region, uh, that family had long been in a, in a major strategic position in the Roman government. Uh, let me show you on a map what I'm talking about here. I don't know if you can see this or not, but uh, um, here you've got uh, this area here now is, is ruled by, uh, will be ruled by Pilate, but before that, uh, Herod Archelaus. And then you've got this area here ruled by uh, Herod Antipas. Uh, and then uh, this area here ruled by uh, Philip, part of the uh, Herodian family. And so you can see this whole area was really kind of tied with uh, the influence of Herod and his family down through the years. And so the Herodians had a lot of political clout. If you were in with Herod, uh, that would mean all kinds of special benefits and, and political privileges. Well, this combination of representatives of the Pharisees in league with the Herodians came to Jesus under the guise of flattery. And they said all kinds of flowery things that were absolutely true. But they were themselves disingenuous. You see, Herod Antipas really wanted Jesus dead, as we find stated in Luke 13, 31. And the Pharisees had already been plotting to kill Jesus, as seen in John eleven fifty three. So they were trying to catch Jesus off guard by making him think they're, they're really all behind him and they have great respect for him. And thereby have him let his guard down and say something that is really politically incorrect by which he would fall. The word teacher showed honor, which was normally reserved for distinguished rabbis. So they come very respectful, as it would appear. And they said to him, Teacher, we, we know you are true. We know you're true. And you teach the way of God in truth. Everything's good about your ministry. Well, you just see how disingenuous this was. If, it was, if they really meant this, then, then why are they trying to ensnare him? 
I mean, if they really believed he was true, they would have believed in him as the son of God, which they did not. This was pure flattery, seeking to butter Jesus up so that he might let his guard down and get tripped up in his words. Now, it's one thing to compliment people. That's fine. Everybody needs a good compliment once in a while, especially when it's deserved. But flattery is feigned respect. It doesn't mean it. It has ulterior motives and is deceptive. Proverbs warns about this. Proverbs 29, 5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. John MacArthur says, although flattery often involves lying, it is most deceptive and despicable when it employs the truth to achieve its wicked purposes. That's what we have here. They said that they recognized that he did not care about anyone. <clears throat> For you do not regard the person of men. Very literally what they said is... It is not of concern to you regarding anyone, for you do not see any person's appearance. In other words, what they were saying is that they recognized Jesus Jesus was a person of impeccable integrity, who was not swayed by people one way or the other. He simply told the truth of God, as it was, without regard for what anyone thought. He wasn't... He wasn't you know, uh, like a politician kind of moldable by the polls or what people say or think. They said, no, no, we, we realize you're a straight shooter. You tell the truth. You tell the truth of God. doesn't matter what anybody thinks. And in this they were right. But the hypocritical spirit of it was completely wrong. Now, ironically, they were the ones who lacked integrity, and Jesus was indeed the one of integrity, And in that integrity, he was about to expose them, thus proving indeed that he always tells it like it is. Now, with great flattery, they buttered Jesus up to ask this question. After all, with that kind of flattery uh, that esteemed him as such a great and true teacher, who told it like it was no matter what, when they asked this leading question, they expect him to bite on it and really go to seed on Rome. To really let Rome have it. That's what they're thinking. With this kind of pressure, with this flattering him, uh, to not answer would almost be like saying they were wrong in their lofty assessment, which would be very unbecoming of one who claimed to be the Messiah. So they really applied the pressure, saying, verse 17, here's the question. Tell us, therefore, in light of our, our flattery about what a great teacher you are, in light of this... Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They put a lot of thought into this trap question. And it was really a simple yes or no question. And no matter how he answered, they figured they had him on the horns of a dilemma, right? It's sort of like that old trick question, have you stopped beating your wife yet? A man can't answer that with a simple yes or no without incriminating himself. If he says yes, that amounts to an admission that he had previously been beating her. If he says no, that indicates he's still doing it. There's no way to answer that with a simple yes or no, without incriminating yourself. This question was like that. It was intended to incriminate Jesus no matter how he answered it. And it was tricky, because it was at once both a religious question 
and also a political question. Now, depending on how it was answered, it could get him into immediate trouble, religiously or politically. And gotcha questions are always tricky and fraught with danger. Well, the Jews absolutely detested the annual poll tax that was demanded by Caesar. Caesar, at this point, was a a title for the Roman emperor, who happened to be Tiberius, who was considered a divine person and thus considered to be the head over the multitude of gods and goddesses in his empire. To pay him a tax ran against the religious scruples of the Jewish people. Here they were in their holy land, paying taxes to a pagan ruler. It just didn't seem right, and they hated it. And there's some history here. Earlier, not too far before this in history, in AD 6, Judas of Galilee had led a rebellion against Rome with the rallying cry that God alone was the Lord of the Jews, and therefore taxes should not be paid to Rome. In Acts 5, Gamaliel reminded the Jews that Judas of Galilee had perished in his endeavors, making the application that if the apostles' endeavor was of men, it would also come to nothing. But then he said, but if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found even to fight against God. And in this, Gamaliel was right. But the point here is that the Jews for many years had resented paying the Roman taxes. And they had a history of rebelling and then paying for it, being crushed under the Roman government for that rebellion. So if Jesus said, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, he would immediately fall out of favor with the Jewish people generally. They knew that. They would consider him to be a traitor. Yeah, pay the taxes, you traitor. that's, That's a trap. Remember, the only reason the religious leaders had not apprehended Jesus up to this point is because of his popularity with the multitudes who considered him to be a true prophet. If they could discredit Jesus by getting him to be on record in favor of paying the Roman taxes, then the multitudes of the Jews who followed him as a true prophet would evaporate. evaporate. They They would turn on him, and they would have their way with him. On the other hand, if Jesus said it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Herodians would be all over this and immediately reported to the Roman authorities that Jesus was guilty of treason and sedition against the state, which called for the death penalty. And as Herodians, they would have had great credibility with Rome because they were, after all, Roman sympathizers. Now, we know from Luke 20, verse 20, that they were trying to catch Jesus in his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. Now, humanly speaking, this seemed like a really good plan. No matter how Jesus answered the question, he would be in trouble, either with the Jewish populace generally or with Rome. Ed Glasscock says, their device snare seemed foolproof. If Jesus said the Jews should pay taxes, the people would turn against him. 
And if he said the Jews should not pay taxes, the leaders could turn him into the Romans for insurrection. So with this question, they thought they had put Jesus between a rock and a hard place. They thought they had a question that would put him in an indefensible position. And so for one who taught the way of God in truth and didn't care what people thought, I mean, that's the, that's the line. The pressure was now on to answer. Verse 18, but Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Here was the problem. These men completely underrated Jesus. They thought they had him figured out, but they didn't really know him. They didn't know him, but he knew them. It is complete folly to take on the Lord. And only losers do this, as they will find time after time on this particular day. Proverbs 21.30 says, There is no wisdom, understanding, or counsel against the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 3.19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for, he, for it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And that's what he's about to do here. Jesus, in his omniscience, saw right through their scheme. He knew their thoughts. He perceived their wickedness, which literally means evil intent. You can't fool Jesus, and only fools try. In response to their trap question, Jesus said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? The word test can mean to solicit to evil, to evaluate, to challenge, or to try and have your way with someone. Here they were, trying to have their way with Jesus, and seeing if they can get away with it. When Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, Peter said, How is it that you have agreed to test the Spirit of the Lord? The word test there is the very same word. As is the case here, they also were trying to pull one over on the Lord and in effect challenging the Lord. But again, the Lord is never fooled and one never has their way with him. Right here, Jesus totally exposed them. And he made it clear to them he knew exactly what they were doing. And he called them out as hypocrites. You see, Jesus is not into game players. The word hypocrite comes from the theater and was used of actors who played a part by wearing a mask. So a hypocrite is one who plays a part pretending to be something they're not. These hypocrites were hiding behind the mask of sincerity, when in reality they were totally trying to destroy Jesus. Jesus, in effect, unmasked them. Jesus didn't go along with their little game, not for a minute. Indeed, he called it just like it was. Ironically, just as they had indicated in their flattery that he was a man who didn't play games and called it like it was. He was showing them just how true this was. He was not afraid, and he was not concerned about offending them. He simply straight out told it like it was. Well, Jesus came down on the sin of hypocrisy, perhaps harder than any other sin. In Matthew 23, Jesus totally blasts the Pharisees again and again for their hypocrisy, saying seven times, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! In the context of religion, a hypocrite is a religious liar. 
This is how John uses the word liar and says, All liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Jesus, ever the Lord, ever in charge, told them, notice he's in charge, verse 19, Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. Now, a denarius was the amount of the Roman poll tax known as a head tax, also known as a head tax, which was a tax levied on every adult annually. A denarius amounted to about a day's wage in the time of Christ. This tax was to be paid to Rome in the form of a denarius. Now, the denarius was a silver coin specially minted by the current reigning emperor named Tiberius, who ruled from A.D. 14 to 37. The denarius bore an engraving of the emperor, who had the title Caesar, on one side, which ascribed divinity to him. Literally, it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side was a picture of a Roman goddess of peace with the inscription high priest, thus portraying peace personified. So uh, here's, here's what it looked like. Here you got uh, Caesar Tiberius, uh, you know, the divine son of Augustus, as he would claim. And on the other side, you got this uh, picture of a, of a, a high priest here, uh, a, a peace. Verse 20. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? The Jews found this whole affair very offensive. Not only was it a constant reminder of Roman oppression, but also was clearly an idolatrous coin deifying Caesar. So in the minds of religious Jews, it clearly violated the first, second, and third commands, which said, you shall have no other gods, you shall not make any graven image, and you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This sordid thing was sacrilegious to them and really smacked of association with idolatry. Now, one thing the Babylonian captivity did do is break the Jews from formal idolatry. They learned the lesson the hard way. They never again fell, in, fell into formal idolatry after the Babylonian captivity. So this was exceedingly offensive to them. Now, I think at this point, the Pharisees in league with the Herodians thought they had Jesus exactly where they wanted him. They were expecting him to now unload on the evils of the pagan Caesar and the idolatry that he was all about. This was exactly the trap they had set for him. And as he comes out swinging against Caesar and against the tax, boy, then they're going to take him to... To, uh, they're going to arrest him and take him to the Roman authorities. And so, verse 21, they said to him, Caesar's. Whose image is this? Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You can almost hear them with anticipation saying, Caesar's, as if feeding fuel that calls for a denunciation from Jesus, which would get him in trouble with Rome. But then Jesus shocked everyone, saying, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. 
What an incredibly profound answer with an economy of words. He did not need time to think about it. He didn't say, you know what, guys, give me a few minutes. I'm going to ponder this. I have to do that all the time. Let me think about this. He didn't say, I, you know, I, no, instantly. Instantly he was ready. And in a succinct way, drew the lines in a most profound manner that baffled all of his critics. Jesus here recognized the legitimacy of human government and even the Roman government, even the government of Caesar. And in effect said to give Caesar what is in his image, that is the tax due to him. John Philip says, the Lord Jesus upheld the established government of the land for the government was of God. The Romans were imperial successors to the Babylonians, Persians, and Greeks whose rule was part of God's judgment on the land. The times of the Gentiles were in force, and those times were not yet fulfilled. So yes, Jesus is indicating the Jews should pay Caesar's taxes. But on the other hand, people are made in God's image, and their very souls belong to him and should be given to him. So Jesus here made a distinction between the sphere of human government and the sphere that belongs to God alone. Yes, God has ordained human government. Going back to Genesis 9. And government needs taxes to operate. No amens this morning. (laughs) I know the sentiment is that taxes are always too high. I probably would agree. But that's not the issue that Jesus made here. In effect, he said, pay the taxes that Caesar demands. And there was a whole host of taxes, but uh, the poll tax is in view here. The people did enjoy what was called Pax Romana, or uh, Roman peace. They were generally free from war and had good roads to travel on throughout the empire. The government provided valuable aqueducts and provided a system of law and order. No government in this fallen world is perfect, but orderly government, even with great deficiencies, is preferable to anarchy and chaos. Yes, the Roman government was idolatrous and really anti-God, in the Bible sense of the word, to the core, but yet Jesus said, render to Caesar the taxes that belong to Caesar. And the New Testament, by the way, is very consistent in this emphasis. Just a few verses here. Romans 13, 6 and 7. For because of this you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Peter pretty much says the same thing. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king supreme, to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. And again, Paul in Titus 3, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing humility to all men. So I would remind us uh, that both Peter and Paul served under the Roman government, which was no friend of Christianity. And yet they called on Christians to be good citizens, to pay their taxes, to obey the government wherever possible, 
and to pray for those in authority. It was under the Roman government that Christ, Peter, and Paul were all killed. But don't forget the last part of what Christ said. And to God, the things that are God's. People are made in God's image. And we, therefore, owe him our very highest allegiance. Our number one loyalty is to be to God. And the things that belong to God are worship and faithfulness. Now, we ought to obey the government unless the government specifically requires us to disobey God. In that case, we are to obey the higher law, God's law, and humbly accept whatever the consequences may be. And we see the apostles bringing this out. Acts chapter 4, verse 19. Peter and John answered them and said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. So if you've got a conflict between what, what anybody is saying, the government or God, you go with God. Acts 5, 29. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. In the Bible, we have several precedents for the people of God defying human government. We have the midwives in Exodus chapter 1 who refused to kill the Jewish babies at the command of Pharaoh. And the scripture says their defiance was motivated by a fear, that is a reverence for God. In Joshua 2, Rahab protected the lives of the two Jewish spies. And in the New Testament, she is commended for her faith. When David's men were desperate for food, he ate the consecrated priest's food, which was technically not right. But Jesus defended his actions, as seen in Matthew 12. In the Old Testament, Daniel defied the government's order to stop praying. And in the New Testament, the apostles refused to stop preaching the gospel in defiance of the government's orders. And in the future, the Antichrist will be in charge of the government. And he will command the whole world to worship him but true believers will defy him. So in the scriptures, as you study this in a systematic way, I see two basic reasons to defy the government. Number one, when the issue of life is at stake, <clears throat> it's appropriate to defy the government. If the Nazis are at the door in my house, eh, just pretend, and uh, I'm hiding Jews, and they say, do you have any Jews here? I think it's going to be okay for me to defy the government. Maybe you say, well, no, I'm going to say they're over there. <laughs> I'm going to be truthful. <laughs> uh, I, I think life is a very high priority. We live in a fallen world. I don't want to do that. But uh, it really is the lesser of two evils at that point. So uh, let's take another example. In a communist country, uh, when they command its citizens to have an abortion, say, okay, you can have one child, but no more. And we command you. Uh, that you had to have an abortion. Uh, it's appropriate to defy the government. Life is a very high premium. When any government commands its citizens to do things that violate their conscience, related to their physical well-being, then I think we have a higher law that says we should honor the temple of God, which is our body. And my counsel is do your own thinking. Uh, I always say I reserve the right to do my own thinking because I'm going to give an account for it before God, and you will too one day. The other issue in Scripture is the matter of worship and obedience to God. You see, the government is not God, and they have no right to dictate how or what we should worship. This is not the government's domain. When the government tries to play God and rule over our spiritual lives... 
then we are obligated to defy the government. And we don't want to defy the government, but they put us in a bind sometimes where we're going to have to choose. Are we going to obey the government or are we going to obey God? And in that case, we need to obey God. We see this in the New Testament in the matter of sharing the gospel. We saw it recently when certain government leaders forbade God's people from assembling. That is overreach. So in general, where I see defiance of the government being appropriate is in the case where life itself is at stake and also in the case where the government interferes with the worship of God's people or with our gospel mandate. In short, whenever the government commands us to disobey God, then we ought to obey God rather than men. And we should do so humbly with the right spirit, not with a spirit of revolution or vigilantism. Sometimes one is sorely tempted. I remember when we were going through the COVID thing and I had a government uh, person call me and said, uh, you know, you really shouldn't be singing. Uh, Things like the Hallelujah Chorus are very bad. Specifically mentioned the Hallelujah Chorus. (laughs) And uh, I was sorely tempted to start singing. But... (laughs) You know, sometimes you're you're just out of line. Jesus clearly made the case here for what is commonly termed the separation of church and state. There are two different domains. And when the church tries to run the state, it's always a train wreck. Just look at this in history. And when the state tries to run the church, it's a disaster. It's a biblical paradigm that the church and the state are to be kept separate. We have in our doctrinal statement this this statement here. Uh, While maintaining a spirit of interdependence with like-minded churches, each local church is independent and autonomous and must be free from interference by an ecclesiastical uh, church or political authority. Therefore, church and state must be kept separate as having different functions, each fulfilling its duties apart from the dictation or patronage of the other. So that's our position. Certainly as good citizens in a representative government, We want to be involved on an individual level as the Lord leads. But this is not the mission of the church. As a church, we are apolitical, meaning we don't directly get involved in politics. You know what? I like to lead Republicans to the Lord. I like to lead Democrats to the Lord. And even a few independents. I'm just kidding. I want to lead them to the Lord too. Our gospel is whosoever will. We don't say, hey, we are a, we're, we're a political party like the Herodians. That's what we're all about. That's our identity. No, our identity is with Jesus Christ. And really our ultimate citizenship is not, we're, we're strangers and pilgrims just passing through here. Yeah, we have a, a minor citizenship here, but our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. As a church, we're apolitical, meaning we don't get get directly involved in politics as a church. Maybe individually you want to and God leaves you in that. Great, we need all the wholesome influence we can have. But but having said that, we do speak God's truth and stand for what God says on the moral issues of the day, whatever they may be. We do speak truth, period. But the mainstay ministry of the church in relation to the world is that of a gospel ministry. And this gospel ministry is addressed to all people. We have a ministry to everyone.
everyone. We're reaching out to everyone. Everybody needs the Lord. It's easy to start thinking we wrestle with flesh and blood, but the Bible says we don't really. There's the forces of evil behind these people who are locked into a a bondage. As Christians, we do have a dual citizenship. We have a citizenship on earth, which comes with certain obligations in terms of human government. With the emphasis here in our text today on paying taxes. But we also have a heavenly citizenship. For God's people, ultimate allegiance is to God. As we are created in his image and we are ultimately here to glorify him. Now this coin bearing the image of Caesar belonged to him. But people being made in the image of God should give themselves first and foremost to him. Liberty Bible Commentary summarizes. The Lord means that we are to give the civil magistrates all that is due to them, so long as it does not interfere with honor due to God. So we are to honor the king, as Peter says, but worshipful homage belongs only to God. We pay the king's taxes, but our souls belong to God alone. Now, ironically, the one bearing the perfect image the perfect representation of God stood before them and they did not even recognize him. In Hebrews chapter one, we read of Christ who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, the exact representation and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 22. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. How is that for winning an argument? What an amazing statement. Jesus reduced his enemies who with everything in them put all of their brain power into trapping him and they went away with nothing to say. Marveling. What an amazing answer. We we don't know what to say. He reduced his enemies to marveling and silence. He hands down won this contest. They had nothing more to say. As they said in John 7, 46, no man ever spoke like this man. They weren't even believers and they were marveling. Maybe they should give that a little thought. John Phillips says, few chapters in the Bible give us a better glimpse of the Lord's wisdom than Matthew 22. At every angle, the proof of Jesus as Messiah God was overwhelming. His life was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And he prophesied things that became true. For example, he filled in some details, such as his coming resurrection would happen on the third day. Not on the second day, not on the fourth day, but precisely on the third day. Jesus' life is uniquely interrelated with prophecy at every point. So much so that Revelation 19.10 says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then there was the unparalleled kingdom miracles that Jesus did in keeping with prophecy related to the coming king and his kingdom. No one ever came presenting the kingdom with proof like this. And then there was his character. Jesus was sinless without flaw. Hard as they tried, they really couldn't find any dirt on Jesus because there wasn't any. 
He truly was the Lamb of God without blemish and without spot. But then add into the mix his profound wisdom that never lost an argument and made even his enemies to marvel and walk away in silence. This was nothing short of deity on display. So awesome that it can only be described as a God thing. And again, in keeping with prophecy, Isaiah 11, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. What other life in the history of the world has been so meshed with and so matched with prophecy as the life of Jesus? There is nothing like this anywhere in the annals of history. His life is a perfect fulfillment of prophecy. His sign miracles match perfectly what is predicted in terms of the kingdom phenomenon. His character was in perfect alignment with prophecy. And his wisdom was staggeringly profound so as to put to silence the most studied and intelligent minds on the planet. And in all this, Jesus passed all the testing with flying colors, showing that indeed he is the qualified Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Roman Empire, Caesar was not only a political leader... He was also known as Pontifex Maximus, which means he was the chief priest over all the religions. His position became so elevated that he became the object of divine worship. The Roman government, you see, tolerated different religions, but it came to the place where once a year, Caesar demanded his supremacy be recognized by every citizen. The demand was that every citizen, once a year, pay divine honors to Caesar by placing just a little pinch, just a little pinch of incense on an altar to the divine emperor and say, Caesar is Lord. All Rome asked, not much, not asking for much, all Rome asked was that her citizens confess with their mouth Caesar is Lord, at least once a year, to show their loyalty and devotion to the great Caesar by saying Caesar is supreme. Caesar is Lord. You see, every time we mention the word Lord, we're declaring a master over us. You know, we really should study Romans 14 and Romans 53. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Really, that, that's not the best translation. You see, if you look in your Bibles, you'll find there is, is in italics, which means the translators added that. Literally, what the fool says in his heart is, no, God, it's defiance. It's not that they're saying there is no God. Actually, I'm thinking about writing a, a little earnestly contending letter that says, I don't believe in atheists. Because, you see, I believe that people are hardwired to the truth of God, as we find in Romans chapter 3. God has put this knowledge in their hearts. But they defy it. No, God, I'm in rebellion. I don't want you. And so, really, the issue of life comes down to a lordship issue. 
The word Lord means master. We honor the governing authorities, but they're not our master. How did faithful Christians respond to Caesar's demand? Well, you see, these early Christians had no problem paying taxes to Caesar. But worship was reserved for God alone. They would never say, Caesar is Lord. No, true Christians would not do it. They would not say, Caesar is Lord. But only Jesus is Lord. This was a lordship issue. Polycarp, A.D. 69 to 156, was a disciple of John the Apostle. And he became a prominent leader in the early church. One account says when the Romans came to arrest him, they pressed him saying, what harm is there in declaring Caesar as Lord? Polycarp responded, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? And they led him away to be burned at the stake. Yes, we honor the king. Yes, we pray for the governing officials. Yes, we seek to be good citizens and obey the government. But we draw the line at lordship. Never will faithful Christians say, Caesar is Lord. For the true Christian, Jesus alone is Lord. Indeed, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay his taxes. Okay, okay, pay his taxes. I don't like it either, but we got pay the taxes. But lordship belongs to Jesus alone. When government tries to play God, they're way out of their realm. The oldest confession in Christianity is Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, proving it, you will be saved. Render to God the lordship of Jesus that belongs to him alone. This was the great issue in Jesus' day. It's the great issue down throughout the church age. And it's the great issue today. It's the great issue for time and all eternity. What say you? Who is Jesus to you? Have you believed on him and confessed him as Lord and Savior? The Bible says the climax of everything leads to this. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you're a true believer, how about we say it together? You don't have to say it. You don't want to say it. And if you don't mean it, don't say it. But let's say it together. Jesus is Lord. Let's say it like we mean it. Jesus is Lord. Indeed, he is. It's not the government. It's Jesus. Let's stand and have our closing song.